0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at AdventBirmingham.org. Well, again, welcome and Merry Christmas to you, brothers and sisters, family. So glad that we're able to share this time together and hear from God's Word. We're listening to God as He speaks to us out of Galatians three and four today. So if you have your bulletins, your Bibles Open up there and we're going to hear from this glorious word and we're going to start with a little bit of theology because that's where Paul starts here. And now for those of you that are understandably kind of allergic to that word theology and are tempted to tune me out because you think theology is just a bunch of way up there thoughts that have nothing to do with your life. You know, the Xbox that you're going to play this afternoon or the movie you're going to see tonight or the stressful job that you'll return to tomorrow or the difficult relationships that you can't manage right now because you've just sort of navigated Christmas, I urge you to pay attention to God's word. It matters very much uh, to those concerns and issues because the best theology is always theology that works on the ground. And believe me, the theology of Paul here in Galatians 3 and 4 is outlining something that works on the ground. I'm speaking here of something that we care a lot about here at the Advent, something that we find the Bible centered on. You've heard it in today's reading, and it's the central concern of the book of Galatians. And I think one of the central themes of the Bible, believe it or not, we're talking about the distinction between law and gospel. Or to put it another way, justification by works and justification by faith. And some of you are like, "Okay, big words, unimportant words. I'm tapping out. Oh, but you have to see that this distinction drove Paul towards some very earthy behavior that shows up in the way that this theology has grounding and it has grit and it has skin in the game and it will help you make sense of life. First definitions, most broadly and biblically, the law is God's word that says what you have to do, God's word that says what you have to do. And the gospel is God's word that says what Jesus has done for you. God's word that says what Jesus has done for you. And notice how intensely Paul reacts to these dynamics. If you turn back to chapter one, you'll hardly find a letter of Paul's that opens with more of an immediate punch. Chapter one, verse six says, I'm astonished, Paul says that you're so quickly deserting him who called you from the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And then he'll say it's actually no gospel at all. Paul expresses that anger even more at the opening of chapter 3. He basically says, you fools, are you that gullible that you fell for this? You know, so really strong words. Fast forward to chapter 2. And it's that same theology that drove Paul into a brawl with Peter. No, they weren't throwing punches. But Paul says, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. I grabbed him by the collar. I got up in his grill. Why? Well, this is where we start to hear how grounded this theology is of the distinction between law and gospel. Peter had failed to make this distinction. And get this, as a result, he refuses to sit by and eat with certain people in the public cafeteria because of their race. Yep, you heard me right. Peter failed to distinguish between law and gospel. And it led to behavior that Paul responded to by saying, I got in Peter's face and said, your behavior doesn't match the gospel that you preach. So friends, away with this idea that uh, this theology, this distinction between law and gospel, doesn't hit you where you live. The presenting issue in this town called Galatia is that Paul came in and told them about the glorious gospel that Jesus Christ saves sinners like you and me who don't deserve it. And others came in behind him and after him and snatched that truth away. They snatched that truth away by adding a condition. To the naked gospel, they said, "Yes, Jesus died for you. Yes, Jesus loves you, but you need to do these things. Particularly in their issue, be circumcised, observe the Sabbath, and be on some kind of special health plan like a keto diet. And you know those things. Uh, they sh- they tend to show. They said that you're a real Christian if you do those things. And Paul says you've been bewitched. You've been fooled." Paul's point is that the gospel is good news about the free gift, the free gift of God's pardoning and enlivening grace through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The free gift. Once you put any kind of condition, any kind of hook on that gift, once you put any if, and, or but, you actually lose the gospel. That's what Paul's saying here. Why? because the gospel is the declaration of god's grace as a free gift and once it's god forgives you in christ if you keep this rule or if you behave like a christian it's actually no longer the gospel the gospel is an ifless declaration you see paul means that the gospel is only clearly heard when it is separated from and distinguished from The law. And when you put an if on the gospel, the separation actually collapses and you're no longer hearing the gospel. Jesus Christ died for you, loves you, and forgives you. Gospel. Jesus Christ died for you, loves you, and forgives you if no longer the gospel. It's that simple. So Paul says they must be distinguished radically. The clarity of the gospel depends upon the distinction. This is what Paul is getting at when he says, Before faith came, we were held captive under the law. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under the guardianship of the law. God's good law must remain in its place for its purposes. And the gospel must be radically and sharply distinguished from it. If I condition the gospel with anything... I don't keep them separate and the gospel is lost because, to say it again, the gospel is heard as it's separated from the law. Of course, there's so much more to be said. I'd love to tease out what this might mean for parenting or relationships among single adults or governmental politics or club teams and suburban sports culture, or family dynamics at the holidays. And yes, the law-gospel distinction touches on all those things and informs all those things. But I want to go now where Paul goes here as he turns the corner and gives us a powerfully hopeful word about slavery and adoption and the spirit and the loving fatherhood of God. Paul says that the payout of getting this distinction between the law and the gospel right is nothing short of peace and freedom. The reason this passage often gets quoted at Christmas time is because of chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption... As sons. What Paul means here by fullness of time is several things. First, in keeping with this whole law gospel distinction and dynamic, the fullness of time means when humans have been given enough time under the law of God to realize that they can't keep it on their own and they recognize they're in need of something else, something different. If you want to summarize the entire Old Testament in a nutshell, it would be this. Despite thousands of years of trying, despite upstarts and fresh starts and restarts, humanity can't keep God's law on their own. And so the fullness of time means when these attempts had run their course and history told the same old story enough times that we knew it needed something different. History finally cries, uncle. The fullness of time also means in general Just God's own sovereign and providential timing of the rightness of the world to receive who Jesus is and what he's done. In God's perfect and inscrutable will, this moment, roughly 3 to 6 B.C., if our science and archaeology are right, would be the moment that God said, I'm now ready to unveil what all of history is all about. And so Jesus was born under the law. To redeem those under the law. You and me, the lawbreakers, the failed Christians, the people who, despite generations of trying, prove not to be committed enough, radical enough, sold out enough, single minded enough, consistent enough, Christian enough. And it's to that not good enough people, you and me, that Jesus comes. But listen here to the language of Jesus' saving work. It's specific and it's powerful. Verse 5 says, God sent Jesus to redeem those under the law. Redeem sounds like a religious word, but it's not. In fact, we use that word when we talk about coupons, right? Which shows us that there's something more behind it than just religiosity. Think of it this way. Think of the arena of the law like a big box store like Home Depot or Target. Yeah, yeah, Target's good because it's got a bullseye on you and it's going in for the kill, kind of like the law does. Right? The metaphor of redemption works like this. The realm of the law is that store and all of humanity sits on Target's shelves. We all have a price tag on us and if you were to take any one of us off the shelf and hold us up under one of those red barcode scanners, it would beep And the price would appear on the screen. What would the price tag say? Well, it would ring up kind of funny, actually. You'd see on the screen two figures, not one. You'd see first the expected one, which is how much this human, this sinner, costs. And the answer is perfect righteousness. Total, absolute, perfect righteousness. If you want to buy this human and take her out of the store, out from under the law, you need to pay the cashier. Perfect righteousness. But, I'm sorry, on this particular product you rung up, there's also a debt. A negative balance called sin. And because this negative balance operates in the economy of infinites, the divine economy, which is the economy of the law, the negative balance is, well, to put it mildly, sizable. So take any one of us off the shelves and hold us up to the target scanner, and we all read that way. Beep. Positive righteousness required. Beep. Negative balance also accrued. Amount total. Infinity. Now, according to the Bible, there's only one kind of currency that satisfies that readout, there's only one kind of payment. ...that won't get rejected. And it's the life and death of Jesus. The life of Jesus satisfies... ...the positive righteousness required... ...perfect, beautiful, sinless life. And the death of Jesus satisfies... ...the negative balance. Redemption means that God... ...because he loved you... ...sent Jesus into Target... ...to buy you out of there... ...with the currency of his own life and his own death. Now, the metaphor of redemption can get taken in all kinds of unbiblical and unhelpful directions, so we can't press it too far. But what we can say is that the metaphor is meant to give us the understanding that God bought us out of the slavery of that realm, that store, that law, and delivered us through those automatic sliding doors into the open air of God's grace and freedom. And now here's the really cool part, friends. What's waiting for you on the other side of those double doors isn't just the rest of your life that you have to figure out on your own. This is not like someone who has just been sprung from jail who has to fend for themselves and work their way back into wealth and stability and the good graces of society. No, it's a whole different level of peace and freedom and joy Verses 6 through 7 say that we've been redeemed so that we might receive adoption as sons. When you fly out of those automatic sliding double doors in Jesus' shopping cart of grace, God doesn't just say, You've been restored as a citizen of Mother Earth. Now go out there and find your life and identity and meaning. No. God says, Look, look, adoption papers. You're mine. My child, my daughter, my son, wait, 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 God, how do I know this is for real? How do I know these adoption papers are legit and will hold up in a court of law? How do I know that these papers aren't a forgery? Well, daughter, I'm glad that you asked. Bam, I give you my embossed seal, the unmistakable, uncounterfeitable seal of authenticity, the Holy Spirit. Bam. Right on your heart. The ink is invisible, but it's indelible. It's like a spiritual tattoo. It's irremovable. You can't see it with the human eye, but it's clear as day with the eyes of faith. So that when you die the first death and enter the gates of heaven, the border agents will see that very Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of Jesus. The one whose life and blood paid for you. And the border agents will see that seal of authenticity and they will stamp approved on your beautiful forehead. And then you'll walk into the eternal party and dance the night away with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the angels and all the other sons and daughters of God, world without end. Amen. That freedom, that joy, that vision that you're catching a glimpse of, in the midst of the pain and the struggle and the darkness of this present age. This is what the word wants to remind you of today. When it says, you're no longer a slave, but you're a son. You're no longer a slave, but you're a daughter. Do you get now why, as cheesy as it might sound, why Christians are prone to call each other brother and sister? It's because we're all part of one big adopted family. God is our Father. Jesus is our kind, brave, protective, and loving older brother. And the Holy Spirit is the tangible, relational presence of that one God that glues us all together. I want to just linger a little bit longer on the significance of your daughterhood and your sonship when you grasp the redemption that is yours in the grace of Christ, apart from the law. In other words, I want to tell you about the significance embedded in the fine print of your adoption papers. Now that you are adopted as a son and a daughter of God the Father, everything that belongs to Jesus the Son, everything that he currently possesses and will possess as the rightful heir gets passed on to you too. Jesus has purchased you and the Spirit has sealed your adoption and you've been written in. To his inheritance. And what is that inheritance? We could look at a lot of places in scripture. But let's go to the one other place that Paul talks explicitly about slavery and adoption and inheritance. It's my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. Romans 8. Romans 8.32 reads to us the fine print. It says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him Graciously give us all things. There's your inheritance. All things. What the Son gets, you get. You know that sick to your stomach feeling that you have opening all your Christmas presents and you realize it's over and that even though you got some great gifts, your selfish spirit isn't satisfied? One day you will receive all things. And because Jesus has redeemed you from sin, you won't have a sinful, selfish, consumeristic, possessive response to having all those things. It will only be total freedom, total gift. The whole world that is given to Jesus because he deserves all the glory and honor and praise is given to you as a rightful heir as well, to be received as a gift And shared with all your brothers and sisters. Now, that's a bit mind blowing, all that future stuff. But what about now, while we wait patiently for that day when the redemption is fully complete and when we're fully and finally whisked out of those double doors? The word in Galatians says that right now, because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. In other words, the seal of the presence of the Holy Spirit is a down payment gift to you right now that allows you to talk and relate to God, not as a master, not as a slave driver, but as father. You can talk to him and relate to him now as intimately and as passionately and as sincerely as you will. When all the sin and pain and tears are fully relieved. In other words, in times, in your times of loneliness and distress and sadness and depression and grief and emptiness and incompleteness and disconnectedness. The Holy Spirit is there to help you place your head on the Father's chest now and ask for things. Sob your eyes out. Tell him your trivial matters. Wail. Wail about the injustices. Laugh about the funny things. Available to you now is that kind of comfort. What are the, some of the tangible vehicles that God gives us for that conversation and that comfort? I'll give you three. Prayer, the Bible, and worship. Prayer is a way that we lay our head on God's chest and talk to Him. It's why when Jesus taught us to pray, He actually didn't teach us to say, Dear God. Oh no, He taught us to pray in the Spirit as we're taught here. Our Father. Reading the Bible prayerfully becomes a way to word our prayers up to God and to hear the Father talk back to us. It becomes a rendezvous point to be reminded of who we are as adopted sons and daughters. Have you ever known the joy and intimacy of praying the scriptures like the Psalms to God the Father? Have you ever known the sweetness of the Father's loving words to you as you read the Bible? All of that is the Abba Father-ishness available by the power of the Holy Spirit. And worship, what we're doing right now, as we gather together It's where the Father meets his gathered people in the power of the Spirit to remind you of your adoption and your inheritance in Jesus. It's why we have the liturgy we do. We repent and we do it weekly so that we can remember who we are as redeemed from under the law. So brothers and sisters, remember today that in the Spirit and by the blood of Jesus, you are the Father's. All the rights and privileges of the Son are yours too. Freedom. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.